James chapter 2, and we've titled the message tonight, The Evidences of a Living Faith. The Evidences of a Living Faith. You see, James is speaking to a church that is undergoing persecution due to their faith. And because they're going this, undergoing this persecution of their faith, he, he tells them to count it all joy when they're going through various trials. But then he also ends the first chapter with telling them and encouraging and exhorting the church to not only be hearers of the Word of God, but also be doers of the Word of God. And we saw through chapter 1 of James that the trial is a time for application. The word application is so needed that we would be doers. And just like mentioned right now by Pastor Jeff, this can be a season where we can learn a lot. Or this can be a season where we become comfortable. And and it's so easy to become comfortable. And and the dangers of becoming comfortable is that we easily start to compromise in the area of our faith. So therefore, today we want to watch, we want to check our faith as one would check their pulse. I want to encourage you today, would you check your faith today? Your faith in the Lord, your faith in the circumstance that we are in right now. You know, there's a lot of testing going on with this virus and you see that there is still doubt, there's still insecurity, the unknown of when things will go back to how they were before. I heard recently that this little saying, it says, make sure that you test positive for faith, keep distance from doubt and isolate yourself from fear and trust God through it all. Well, isn't that true that we ought to test positive for faith? But here in the second chapter of James, James is going to speak against any type of religious activity and against any type of shallow faith. And he's going to give us the difference between religious and spiritual. Because there's a big difference between religious and spiritual, and it's marked, it's drawn of the line in the middle by genuine faith. And then he's going to tell us, chapter 2, what is faith, but he's also going to tell us what faith is not. What faith is not? What is acceptable when it comes to our faith as we're undergoing trials, and what is not acceptable because it is not religious activity. Faith is love and action is really demonstrating our trust in the Lord. It's really living out obedience in God. And he divides this chapter, chapter 2 of James, in two major parts. I want to give you these two major points as you do take notes of students of the Word of God. Is that number one, true saving faith practices impartiality. True saving faith practices impartiality. And number two, true saving faith practices action true saving faith practices action because here James is going to speak about this sin that can possibly take or seep into the church and this is a sin of favoritism this is a sin of that is carnal that is partiality and it's not from God it's an attitude of the world It's a secular behavior. It it promotes, in fact, cliques within the church instead of a community and of a fellowship in the body of Christ. It promotes a spirit of competition instead of a spirit of collaboration and unity together. And he's going to tell us that true and honest faith is not 
a respecter of persons. Would you remember that today? True and honest faith is not a respecter of persons. It's so important that we notice that, that we understand that. Because faith is not partial. Faith is not partial, just like real love is without hypocrisy. And this is exactly what he wants to exhort the church right now. That our faith should be with no limits, with no segregation, without discrimination, as we are a church called to be separated from the attributes or from the attitudes of the world, of the flesh. So let's go ahead and pray right now as we go to James chapter 2. Would you join me together? Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Jesus. We thank you for your word, Lord. And we ask right now, Lord, as we go through James chapter 2, that you would speak to us, Lord. That we would check our faith tonight. That we would know, Lord, that the trial is the time for application. It is a time for us to use everything that we've been taught. All the years in discipleship, all the years in prayer, it's, it's a time for us to apply, Lord, the Word of God in our lives. Because these are the true evidences of a living faith. We ask that you would minister to us now in Jesus' name. And together we said, from wherever you are, amen, amen. So we are going to see here that here James is going to talk to us about a living faith. Notice it's not a dead faith, but it's a living faith. And this true living faith practices impartiality. Let's go James 2, verse 1. It says this, My brethren, to the church, brothers and sisters, do not hold... The faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention. Notice that. Pay attention. Would you circle that? To the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit there in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Now he's going to speak to us here a, a, a warning against this favoritism or against this prejudice when it comes to our faith. Because honest and real faith shows honest and real love. It does. And he starts off by saying, My dear brothers and sisters, do not hold fast or don't claim, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he's starting with an exhortation. He's starting with an encouragement. And he's saying here, How can you claim faith in Jesus, the Lord of glory? <laughs> we have to notice that he gives Jesus all the deity, all the recognition, and he speaks to us here about Jesus, who is God, here the half-brother of Jesus. How is it that we can hold on to the faith in Jesus who is our Lord of glory or who Jesus who is God? How is it that we can claim to have respect and fear for Jesus who is the Lord if we're showing partiality? In fact, the New Living Translation says this, If you favor some people over others, 
And he's going to talk about this word partiality, which means really discrimination within the assembly, the body of Christ, the gathering, or in the church. And that word discrimination, it means exalting someone strictly on superficial or an external basis, such as an appearance. You're looking at someone and you start to make judgment and, and what you're doing when you are practicing or accepting and receiving partiality is that we're misrepresenting the faith and God when we show partiality. Notice this, that he's going to talk to them about partiality and he's going to tell them that it is the product of their very own pride. Did you know that that partiality is the product of our very own pride? In fact, it indicates our selfish intentions of the human heart. It comes from our pride, partiality, from what we like and what we don't like. And he's going to give us an example of how partiality would manifest itself. Verse 2, it says this, For if this should have come into your assembly, your gathering, a man... And it talks here about this man here in verse 2. With gold rings or in fine apparel. And there should be also here come in a poor in filthy clothes. Just imagine you're gathering together as the body of Christ. And there comes in a man that maybe is dressed in a fancy or ex impressive or expensive clothing. Versus one that maybe is poor and, and humble. And you pay attention. Verse 2 says, or you look upon... That we're look upon with special attention or with preferred treatment now. Due to status now. To the one that is rich versus the one that is simple, poor, or humble. You have fallen into this trap now, into this behavior, into this characteristic that's, that's titled now here partiality. And it's very important for us as a church to know this, that we ought to rise above this partiality. We have to rise above this. Because he's speaking about a believer, a Christian, the church now, even in the moment of trial now, that they're looking at the clothing versus the character. <laughs> they're looking at appearance. They're focused on appearance now. And, and when you focus on appearance, it really affects the way that you receive others and it affects the way you serve others. Because you're looking at the way that they look and it dictates the motivation of your heart. It dictates the motivation of your heart. This is why here James is telling us that he wants you to check your faith, number one, in terms of how you view others. And I want to ask you tonight, how do you view others? Are you looking at others through the lens of compassion or through the lens of selfishness? We're looking at others through the eyes of Jesus because the Lord does not see as man sees. We remember in 1 Samuel, when Samuel went to now anoint David to be king. And he tells him in 1 Samuel 16 verse 7 that the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at the outward appearance or at his appearance or at his physical stature because I've refused them. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What is the Lord looking at today? The heart. Here he's giving them a warning from verse 1 through 3 and verse 4. It says, Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Giving preferred treatment, telling one to sit here and the other over there. Have you not shown discrimination here, church? 
That you are judging and your, your motivations on that judgment are guided by evil motives now. They are self-seeking motives and you're passing the wrong judgment here. You see here, we cannot be serving people with a hidden agenda. Specifically in times like these. In fact, he's saying you should learn to give to others who can never repay you. Isn't that the message of Jesus? That we would serve those that necessarily maybe don't even have nothing to offer us in return. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus said this, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, and you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You see, what he's telling us here is that if you have true and saving faith, you will practice impartiality. Because when you accept this partiality, what we're doing is we are dividing the body of Christ instead of being active advocates for unity in the church and not division. Partiality is not a place among the Christians. Notice this, Jesus treated everyone the same. Jesus treated everyone the same, and he's, and he's calling out this behavior. Because he's saying, I want you to have love without interest, love for the sake of Jesus Christ, where everyone in the body of Christ is important. Why is that important? Because I'll tell you this, whether you're serving the Lord right now, or maybe you're waiting on the Lord during the season, I, we have to understand that we cannot be fake with people. You can't be fake with people. In fact, people can tell when you're being fake. They can. And that never brought anyone to the Lord. You know what brings people to the Lord? Love. Love brings people to the Lord. This is why he's exhorting the church in a very crucial time on how they treat others. Are you doing it the, the way the Lord treats you? Are you doing it in the power of the Spirit? Or are you doing it in the power of the flesh? Everything, all of this that he's talking about, it has to do with the heart. Because the Lord has broken down that middle wall of separation. There is no segregation. So He's telling us that the evidences of a living faith is one that practices impartiality. Verse 5, it says, Listen now, notice this. He's giving and grabbing and causing their attention. My beloved brethren or my loved brothers and sisters. Look what He's about to teach us here. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him. Hasn't God now displayed His special favor and love and compassion on those that are poor? Has God not chosen the poor to be rich in the faith? Or aren't they those that are poor now, even in spirit, or also even those that are poor in resources or humble or simple now? Aren't those the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom of God that God has promised to those who love Him? Now this is a promise to those who love Him. But why specifically does He focus this promise on the poor? In fact, He says that it's the poor because the poor depend on God when in some occasions or some instances, the rich can depend on their possessions. And that's why this promise is a promise to those who love God, a promise to lovers of God, not a promise to lovers of possession. And I really pray that today we become more lovers of God than anything. 
Because here he's saying you should be taking care of those that are poor, those that are actually uh, focusing and depending upon the Lord, that their dependability is on the Lord and it's not on possessions. In fact, that attitude of dependability, of trust in the Lord, God has given those and a promise that they would inherit the kingdom. That's exactly why they're objects or they're people. They're a group of God's special concern. Just look at the nature of Jesus. Wasn't Jesus now poor, simple, humble resources? His mother received the message. Blessed are you, a simple, humble woman. Blessed and highly favored of the Lord. Now he's saying with that being said, verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. You have not shown love and dishonored that poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Isn't these the ones that are persecuting you in this very season? Isn't these the ones that are maybe oftentimes taking advantage of you? Verse 7, do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Isn't it those that turn their back on God and don't trust God and do not depend on God? Aren't they the ones that are slandering the very name that you bear? Who is it that you want to identify with? You see, the problem with partiality, it has to do with who you want to identify with. You oftentimes want to prefer treatment to those that you want to be identified with or by. Because you're concerned about your image. The only image you should be concerned about is about being more like the image of Jesus. The image of Christ. And that's exactly what he's, why he's telling them this, because he wants them to be not people pleasers, but God pleasers. Pleasers in the eyes of God. You know, it's so easy that we become popular in the eyes of man, and then really quickly we can become unfaithful in the eyes of the Lord. And that's usually what happens. That we want to be popular in the eyes of man, we quickly become unfaithful in the eyes of God. In fact, we should say the opposite. These people are important to God, therefore they should be important to me. Are they important to you? Let's go ahead and read verse 8 and 9 as he continues to tell us this. And he, he tells them, I want you to realize what you're doing. I want you to realize what this behavior is causing, this partiality or this sin. Because in verse 8 it says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. <laughs> this is a beautiful word of the royal law. If you really are living out your faith with this royal law or this law that is supreme. He's going to tell them, you're living out this supreme law, this royal law. And that royal law that he's referring to is to love your neighbor. Because some would say, well, you know, it's not that we're giving partiality or treatment. I'm just loving my neighbor. And this so happens to be my neighbor, a very blessed man that I want to identify with. Now he's going to really exhort them against that excuse. And he's saying this in verse 8. If you fulfill the royal law that you love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Good for you. You're doing a great job. In fact, I want you to do a better job at it. I want you to fulfill or exercise now this royal law without partiality now. Because the poor man or that man that maybe you are not generally attracted to is just as much a neighbor to you as the rich man. You see what was taking place here? That they wanted to apply truth when it was only convenient. They wanted to discriminate now with the word of God and apply it when it was convenient to them. 
And they wanted to apply it to something that, that maybe to them seemed more appealing now. Because he's going to tell us this in verse 9 as he says this, But if you show partiality, you commit sin. Now we, we need to underline this in our Bibles. Because he's saying if you're showing any type of discrimination when it comes to loving and serving people and you are serving a preferred group instead of another. This is a form of partiality. This is a form of discrimination. And it is also a sin. It's also a sin. And in fact, we pray that we would be convicted of this. So that we would unite the body of Christ more than ever. As it tells us here, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. In fact, you are now convicted or you are guilty of breaking or of violating the law altogether. You might say, well, well I, I'm innocent because I am loving a certain group of people. But are you now demonstrating a partial obedience to the commandments of God? Because that's not the way that God shows you love. God is not partial with His love. God does not show His love in a partial way. He doesn't show grace in a partial way. God does not show now forgiveness in a partial way. He does it without partiality. And it's important that we don't apply truth only when we want. When it is now offering us something in return because love is not about convenience. You can't say, well, I love someone, but I just want to serve them when it's convenient to me. That is not real love. It's not real service. It, it doesn't show the true essentials and evidences of a living faith. In fact, that is a dead faith. And we today want to display a living faith in Proverbs 21, verse 13. It says, whoever shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. Well, the church should be those that stand with an open heart and an open ear to say, Lord, I want to answer the needs around us. I want to meet the needs. And I want to meet the needs without partiality. Without reservation. In fact, verse 10, as we could continue reading, it says, For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. And this is a beautiful verse. <laughs> because it reminds us that we are lawbreakers. <laughs> That we are guilty of the law, and that's exactly why we do need a Savior. It reminds us of that, but what he's telling them now is that if you break one of them, or you are guilty as having been broken the entire law, if you stumble in one. Because you are being selective in your obedience. You're picking and choosing what applies to you. I think that today, more than ever, the Word of God is being distorted. And people pick and choose what applies to them, what it doesn't apply to them, because I want it to feel good. I want the gospel to serve me, instead of you being the one that is serving the Lord now with your life, after Him dying on the cross for our sins, and we receiving the forgiveness to eternal life. Do you see here how He is now exhorting and, and rebuking that type of behavior? And he's going to give him an example here in verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, just imagine one person that's saying, you know what? I don't, don't commit adultery, but then you do commit murder. Are you not breaking the law because you are fulfilling or obeying the law with partiality and the commitments of the law? You, you are now convicted now. You are now accountable now. 
and guilty to it because you are doing it with some type of segregation or evil judgment or hidden agenda or motivation in your heart. In verse 12, he says this, so speak and so do. I love this. Well, this is direct application for us. After having said that, James says this, so I want you to speak and I want you to do with this very powerful word with accountability. Accountability. You see, application and activity really doesn't mean anything without accountability. In fact, it's accountability that keeps you in line, staying the course now, true to the Word of God in moments like the ones that we're living in today. Accountability. Are you staying accountable, church, right now? And if you are, let me ask you this. Who are you staying accountable to? This is so amazing that we get to study the Word of God and say, Lord, keep me accountable through your Holy Spirit to the Word of God. Because in verse 12 it says, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. I want you to remember that everything that you speak and everything that you do, you will be held accountable before God, even by that law that has set you free. Whatever you say, whatever you do, church, you will be held accountable. And when you, you take that into perspective that I am going to be held accountable, and I'm going to stand before the Lord and have to answer about what I said and what I did before the Lord on that day. And I want you to remind you, on that day, no one is going to stand with you. You will stand on that day by yourself. It's going to be you and God. And we will give accountability. In fact, it says, knowing that you will give accountability, verse 13, it says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Oh, isn't this amazing? This is the difference here between religious activity and true faith. And he tells us in verse 13 now, don't be those that judge without mercy or don't extend mercy because they will be judged without mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. In fact, what he's saying is those or there will be those that will not receive mercy because they have not extended mercy. But if you are the one that shows mercy when the Lord judges you or, and when you are, have to give account to God, He will also extend mercy or the same measure of mercy that now you extended to others. That's exactly why we ought to conduct ourselves with a faith that shows no partiality. Because we know one day we're going to have to answer to God. And He who showed mercy is the one that He who will receive mercy. This sounds like someone that listened to the Sermon on the Mount, James. What did Jesus say on Matthew chapter 5, verse 7? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. There are often times in our lives, church, where we are so ready to receive mercy. We ask the Lord, Lord, give us mercy, give us favor, give us grace in our life. And we want to receive mercy. And for some reason, we think we deserve mercy at times. But then the person that we need to extend mercy to, they don't deserve it. We're not ready to extend it. But a faith that wants to extend mercy, a faith that wants to extend love, a faith that wants to extend now forgiveness is a living faith. 
Faith is not so much something that you talk about, but it's what really motivates you and motivates others to, to serve one another and to love one another. Faith is love in action here. And he's going to encourage them not to now get comfortable or not to compromise in the trial. To allow your faith to be living. And in church, today I want to encourage you in this season that we're living in, I pray that you're not getting comfortable. I pray that you don't ask the Lord, Lord, I want things to go back to normal. Because normal sometimes isn't spiritual. We should be praying, Lord, I want you to do something new. Because I don't want to go back the same way. I don't want to come out the same way that I entered this trial. What are some of the things that we've been learning? He's already told us here, number one, that true saving faith practices impartiality. Number two, true saving faith practices action. True saving faith practices action. What is a profit? Verse 14. What benefit? What is it that we have here now? As a living faith is a saving faith. We're going to talk about a faith now that that really is one that's trusting the Lord. But if you're trusting the Lord, notice this. The evidences of your faith that is living will be demonstrated. They will be revealed. They will be manifested. What is the profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? Now, what is the prophet if someone says that he has faith in the Lord, but there is no evidence of that faith? And there he says, can that type of faith save anyone? Think about that. Now, we know that the apostle Paul told us that we're saved by grace through faith. And now, is this contradicting one another in in doctrine? Absolutely not, because the Bible will not contradict the Bible. (laughs) It will not. It's all inspired by the Holy Spirit. In fact, what he's saying is that faith alone saves, yes, but faith that saves is not alone. <laughs> faith alone saves, but faith that, that, that saves is not alone. It is accompanied by good works. In Titus chapter 3, verse 8, we notice this, that it says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God, those that have believed in God, should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Be careful. You see, the trial is a time of wisdom. In James chapter 1, it spoke about asking for wisdom. And wisdom speaks about being careful now. To maintain good works. Now in verse 15 and 16 is going to talk about this type of faith that has absolutely no works. In fact, it is not a living faith. It is a dead faith. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, if he is in need or has essential needs like food and clothing, and you say, verse here, 14 and 15, you say to them to depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What is a profit? <laughs> well, just imagine someone that is in need. And they need to be warmed, they need to be filled, they need clothing, they need basic essentials, both maybe physical needs as well. And you tell them, the Lord bless you, we're praying for you, and you send them on their way, but you don't meet that physical need. What good does that faith do? Or what good does that word even do? There's sometimes we're so quick to say, well, may God bless you. But instead, after saying that, we should also say, Lord, 
I want you to use me as the answer to this prayer to meet this need. Because we can't simply pray or say we're praying as an excuse or as a substitution to do nothing. And there are often times that we use prayer as an excuse to do nothing. No, we have to say, Lord, I want you to use me as an answer to prayer. You see, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is that he's going to tell us. Let's read verse 17 as he goes on and he says this. Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have work, works, it's dead. Now, next to the word dead, really what he's saying here, and I'd like for you to write this, it means worthless or useless. Is that real faith in the Lord if it's not demonstrated in any way in which the Lord would have now received that person or manifested an act of love? Because I want you to know ministry, even for us that are serving it, and you that you're serving, even from your home, it's, it's not platform-centered, and sometimes that's what we think it is. That the person on the platform is the one that's doing it, and I just come, and I believe, and I go back home. No, right now is the opportunity where the church gets to live out everything that has been being taught into our lives week after week after week. Because ministry is people-centered. It's not platform-centered. And if it's people-centered, it means it's meeting the needs. It's not about religious activity. It's about faith that is working. It's about faith that produces visible fruits. Does your faith produce visible fruit? You see, we cannot have words of compassion without acts of compassion. Did you notice that? Sometimes we're so quick to be good with words of compassion, but what happens to the acts of compassion? We're reminded in Hebrews... But the Apostle Paul tells us this, that we ought to stir up love and good works. <laughs> this is the time to stir up love and good works as we even want to come back and gather in the assembly and not forsake the assembly. Yes, we are waiting for that again. But as we wait, what are we doing? We cannot waste time. We must redeem the time because the days are evil. Let's go to verse 18 as he says this. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. There are those that are going to say, well, you know what? You're the one that has the works, but I'm the one that has faith. And Paul here is going to speak against that or he's going to argue against that because he's saying, no, that's impossible to do. Because he's saying, you, you say that, you know what? I want you to show me your faith by your works and I'll show you my faith by telling you about it. But that's not exactly how you use your faith. That's not how you're utilizing faith. And it says, but I say here now, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, and you do well. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. You see, it's not enough just to say that you have faith, but you have no works that follow it. And some people will say that. I'll show you my faith without works. There is, it's an impossible to show a faith that is not followed by anything. It is impossible to say that you have, you're trusting in the Lord if your life has not changed. You, you cannot show me a faith without anything following it because it has no evidence or it has no proof that that which you speak about is real. And in verse 19, he says, you believe that there is one God, you do well. This is good theology. <laughs> There are a lot of times where we say, well, you know what? I got this down. It's my theology that I believe that there is, notice this, one God. 
Yes, there's one God. There's no other gods but the one God. Theologically, you know, logically, this is correct. This is great doctrine. You do well. In fact, he's saying, good for you. Even the demons believe and they tremble. And that type of faith doesn't save them. It's a dead faith. You know, he's comparing them or he's using the contrast here of the demons believing in the Lord and they trembling. They don't put their trust in the Lord and they believe that there is one God as well and it is not a saving faith. In fact, they tremble. What he wants the church to do is that it would provoke a response. That it would provoke a reaction from the church that it would not be empty or defective now when it comes to their belief in God and that you would use a faith that is working. In fact, he's asking us, what kind of faith is on display in your life? What kind of faith do you possess now? Does it do anything for anyone? Is there any reaction or any response now that you do believe that there is one God? Because if you do believe in one, that there is one God, have you put your faith in Him? Have you put your faith in Him? You know, the, theology is not really fully even believed until it's fully applied. And then there's a lot of times that we want to be theologians. We, don't, we want it without application. <laughs> without accountability, the, theology does not come without accountability. And we are accountable to yes, we believe that there is one God. In fact, this is what makes your faith beautiful. That you believe in word and that you believe in reality. It has changed your life. You believe in word and in reality. Let's read verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? You know what he's telling us here? Is that you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility even now. Even now as you are at home, you have a responsibility to live out your faith. (laughs) You have a responsibility to stay close to, yes, there is one God. In fact, let's keep reading here, but you, do you want to know, foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Verse 21, he gives them an example now from the past. And he starts with Abraham here. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Was not Abraham justified or counted to be right with God or considered to be right with God when he offered up his son? Now he was considered righteous. The Bible tells us that Abraham was. And he uses Abraham because Abraham was idolized. They looked up to Abraham. They considered him to be right with God. And he says, Abraham was considered to be right with God when he demonstrated his faith by following it with actions as he took his son Isaac in obedience, trusting God to sacrifice him at the altar. Now we know that he was stopped and he did not sacrifice his son at the altar, but it was his faith that was followed by actions and it was his faith that was working together that made his faith perfect or made his faith complete. What does this tell us? That our faith without our actions or our faith without us living it out is incomplete. It's incomplete. We can't just talk about it. In fact, the world is waiting for us not to only talk about it, but also live it out. (laughs) And this is exactly what he says here in verse 22. It says, do you see that faith was working together? Notice this. It is a faith that works. (laughs) Because there also is something like a faith that doesn't work. It is stagnant. It is comfortable. It is compromising faith. 
But here he's saying, do you not see here in verse 22 that faith was working together with his works and by his works, faith was made perfect. By his works, his faith was made complete because his works were showing that his faith was real. His works revealed his faith. There's nothing more amazing than to know when your works, when your life, when your good works are revealing your faith. And that's exactly why in verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled or completed, or it was given to be true now in verse 23, where it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted, I love this, to him to, to be for righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. A friend of God, this is amazing. Abraham was able to be right before God because of now his faith that was living now. He was considered right before the Lord. And in fact, he was called a friend of God. Now, a friend of God speaks about an intimate relationship. See, the best way of becoming intimate with God is through a faith that is working. That's why it's so amazing when you feel so close to the Lord, when you know your faith is working. When you know that you are living out your faith. When your faith is being lived out in this simple word that Abraham teaches us, this word obedience. Because accountability is all about obedience. You see, faith is lived through obedience. Because obedience demonstrates the reality of your faith. And I'm going to say that again because I want you to remember that. Obedience demonstrates the reality of your faith. You say, well, it's the grace of God that has saved me. Yes, it is. And it is faith in the grace of God that saves me. Absolutely. And I like what Charles Spurgeon also said in following that. He says, that grace that does not change my life will never save my soul. See, the grace of God also changes your life. And it saves your soul and it shows that it is true and is living faith. Verse 24, he goes on and he gives them now an example. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith. Circle this word only. I'm going to be right with God, not only because I said I believed, but also because I followed. Not by faith alone now. And he gives him a second example here of Rahab now in the Old Testament. And this is an example of someone they didn't necessarily look up to. But this is a person that was accounted to be righteous. An unrighteous person with an unrighteous background that later on became righteous now because of their faith working. Verse 25, notice this. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified? Was it not one person that had a, just a testimony or a, a background that was not one that was speaking of their faith? Was she not justified? Was she not made right with God, this, this harlot or this prostitute named Rahab? And it speaks to us as to how when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. And she received the spies. She received them and she believed that the Lord was going to do something in the land. And she led them out another way. Was she not justified? Yes, she was. Why was she justified? Because she believed that God was going to do something. And not only did she believe, she followed that belief with actions. It was not only her talk, but it was also her actions. 
You see, we are declared and we're justified. We're declared righteous before God by our faith. And, and I love how Warren Worsby says it. He says we're, we're justified by God before God by faith. But we are justified before man by our works. God sees our faith, but man can only see our works. This is exactly how they know that our faith is living. Now, verse 26, as we conclude, it says, For as the body without the spirit is dead. This is, he, he wants to really give them a strong exhortation and really press the point. Just like a body now without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. This is exactly why he gave them evidences of a true and of a living faith, not of a dead faith. A living faith that practices impartiality and a living faith that practices activity or action. Because just like the body without the spirit now is dead, so faith without works is dead. And it's important for us to, for us to receive it that way because we get to now evaluate our faith and say, Lord, is my faith now being lived out? Is my faith being lived out right now? When things are not necessarily going the way we want them to go. Am I still living out my faith? Does my faith have any value or does my faith have any life? Because the life in your faith is demonstrated by the works that are taking place out of it. It's almost as if you go to a tree, an apple tree for example. And you go and you look at the apple, the apple it has, the, the, the life is not in the, in the apple, the life is in the roots of the tree. And you know that that tree has life because of the fruit that it's producing in its season. <laughs> you know that that Christian has life because of the fruit that it's producing in every season. Do you see that comparison? Almost like the body without the spirit is dead. What good is it for? Faith without works is dead. Just imagine you as a parent maybe going to your children. And I heard this example and it says, imagine going to your children and saying, you know what, I, I, I got you a gift. They're so excited, everything they've always wanted. I got you a puppy, the puppy that you finally wanted. I finally got you that puppy you wanted. I only need to tell you one thing, the puppy is dead. <laughs> you would think, well, what good is that puppy for? Get that out of my face. <laughs> it can do nothing for me. Because it, it only matters if it's living. This is exactly why I want to encourage you that today is a moment where our faith should be so living. I'm going to read to you Romans chapter 13 as we end. It says this, And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. If there was ever a high time, when we're looking at time and we notice that the clock is ticking and the time now is being now pressed together and that we're running out of time, when you find that, that you're running out of time, you know what it provokes in you? Urgency. Urgency. Is there any urgency right now when it comes to your faith, church? Urgency. Now it's time, high time to awake out of sleep, an awakening out of sleep. Just like we were encouraged before the message. For now our salvation is nearer, or our full redemption, Christ is coming nearer than when we first believed. The night is forspent. The days that we wasted one time in the world, they are forspent. The day is at hand. Therefore, having been said that, let us cast off, throw off the works of darkness now, and let us put on the armor of light. Isn't this amazing encouragement? Cast off, 
put on. You can't put on the armor of light until you first cast off the works of darkness. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly. Are you walking properly? Appropriately. Appropriately. Acceptably. Let us walk properly in the day, not in revilery or in drunkenness, not in lewdness, not in lust, in strife or in envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Your faith is not ever lived more in your life than when you put on Jesus. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. We must awake out of sleep, church. And as the worship team comes up, I want to give you just four points for you to write down right now. When it comes to a living faith, when it comes to a true faith, and what exactly now James told us through chapter 2 in the trial, how does a living faith look? Number one, a living faith, please remember this church, a living faith is not a respecter of persons. Number one, a living faith is not a respecter of persons. Number two, a living faith responds with love and with compassion. A living faith responds with love and responds with compassion. You notice that a dead faith will never respond that way? It is a living faith that responds to the needs around us with love and compassion. Number three, a living faith is lived through trust and through obedience. A living faith is lived through trust and through obedience. It is the trust and obedience of Abraham, the trust and obedience of Rahab that counter them righteous. A living faith is lived through trust and obedience. And finally, number four, a living faith inspires action and application. A living faith inspires action and inspires application. Would we pray tonight that God would awaken us out of sleep, that we would live out our faith with accountability, that we would live out our faith with urgency, that our, la- our faith would respond now with, with trust and obedience, that our faith would be one that is not a respecter of persons, that our faith would respond with love and compassion, that our faith would inspire now action and application today. And maybe you're saying, well, my faith has been asleep or dormant, or I've been comfortable in my faith or compromising in my faith, but I need to make things right with God. It is high time now to awake out of sleep because the day is nearer than when we first believed. We pray, church, right now that the Lord would wake us up, that there would be an awakening. And we cannot ask for awakening in the church until it first happens in your home. There are times that we ask for an awakening in our nation. And yes, tomorrow is, we're praying. It's a national day of prayer. We're going to pray for our nation, but I pray that today you start praying for your home. Because that's where revival of the nation begins. Not in the White House, in your house. And then it comes into God's house. Would we pray that the Lord would awake us to a living faith? Let's go ahead and pray together. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you so much, Jesus. For your word, Lord, it's so true and it's powerful, God. And I ask right now, Lord, by the power of your spirit, Lord, that you would do a mighty work. Lord, that you would teach us, Lord, exhort us, encourage us, God. 
that we would be exhorted to a living faith. 